Mayfield. And I'm Crispin Mayfield. And this is the Prophetic Imagination Station Podcast. Where we discuss evangelical media from the 80s and 90s to understand how it impacted us and our generation. This season, we're talking about DC Talk's album, Jesus Creek. Okay, today I'm so excited because we're talking to Peter Choi, who's one of my favorite people on the planet. And I met Peter when I was a part of the Faith and Justice Network Fellowship Year. I always get the names wrong, but I was a part of a year-long fellowship program with the Faith and Justice Network. I met Peter Choi there, who was one of the leaders and just one of the coolest, smartest, kindest theological thinkers I've been privileged to meet. And we got to do a podcast together last year before I had a mental breakdown and had to take a break from that. Um, but Peter, like, I first of all, I'm so happy you're here. I'll let you say hi now. Hi, it's good hi. to see you guys. I'm glad to be with <laughs> two of my favorite people as well. I've been looking forward to this. And, and Crispin asked you to talk about one of the worst songs on this album and so you're a champion you said yes but i wondered if you could like tell people a little bit about your writing and what some of your writing has centered on and maybe you know they'll get a a sense for where this conversation is going to go yeah sure so my i guess my formal area of specialization if i could call it that is 18th century American religious history. And mm-hmm. um, in particular, I look at um, the origins of early evangelicalism. Um, and also, I'm you know an ordained Christian minister uh, working with the Faith and Justice uh, Network. And so, p- a big part of my work is trying to make connections between that history and um, the ways in which evangelical Christianity shows up in the world. So it may feel yeah. like an or sound like an arcane topic, um, but I think there's a lot of um, a lot of relevance and connections to be drawn. Our podcast is looking at the eighties, the nineteen eighties and nineties and asking <laughs> how, did, how did how did we get here? And you're just like, let's just go back a couple of centuries earlier and ask how did we get here? We're it's doing all the same exact work We're all as doing you, history. Peter, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but but honestly this I want to go back to one thing you said and I coming out of white evangelicalism it's been hard for me sometimes I'm like I feel like I'm overblowing like how evangelical theology shapes culture you know because I was raised in it to be a culture shaper in a specific way you know to be a missionary to be a colonizer whatever but now I'm like I just got a phone call with somebody in Canada about like apocalyptic thinking in society Mm -hmm. and how much that stems to Christian thought and Christian teaching on it. And so even you saying like you studying this kind of theology in the 1800s, like it, it truly does impact us. Right. And I don't think it's a bad thing to bring that up and to discuss that. And so I just, I love the work you're doing. I do think it has resonance even for our silly little podcast, but I wondered like set the scene. What was the nineties like for you? Were you listening to DC talk? Like give us a little picture. Yeah. Okay. So um, in the nineties I was in college and part of, I grew up in, in, in a Korean American church, which was uh, mostly evangelical, I would say, influenced heavily by white evangelical theology and culture. 
And I was involved in my undergrad years in a campus ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And so that that was my world. And I was listening to some Christian music, not DC talk, but, you know, uh, Jars of Clay, Rich Mullins. Oh, you're um, a Jars yeah. of Clay boy. I get it. Okay. <laughs> So I was in that I was in that um in that orbit, right? Um and uh yeah. But you missed out on DC Talk. Now had you heard of the album Jesus Freak? Had that yes. ever like come across? Oh yeah, it was all over the place, right? Okay. So I'm sure I've heard yeah. the songs too. I heard the songs back then. Um but you know, for a historian, I have a really bad memory, so I don't, I don't really remember. <laughs> it, well, maybe instead of saying, as a historian, it was not of interest to you, therefore you do not think maybe. about it all that much, <laughs> that's, you know? That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, re-listening to the song, because I do think that, especially the song Colored People, I think was probably a hard one to miss, Um in, you know, if you're a part of evangelical circles, re-listening to it, what were your first sort of impressions? Yeah. So, I mean, it's the benefit of hindsight, right? So, I'll say these are not the kinds of thoughts that would have occurred to me, even if I was listening carefully in the 90s. Um, but let's see. Uh, I think the first thing that stands out is um, the, the word colored. It seems a little odd. Uh, especially for the 90s, right? So, um, I was told Danielle's I didn't have to do homework. So I didn't I didn't look at the history, the etymology of the word colored in American history. But my sense just off the top of my head is, I don't think that's a word that was being used very much in the 90s. And maybe even then, uh, already had some some negative connotations, right? It strikes me that maybe in the 1960s or 70s, because there was sort of this painful, pejorative connotation to colored that, that, was, being, uh, that was being phased out. So I'm not sure. That, that would be a really interesting question. I don't know if they've talked about this. Why, why colored? Um, but that stood out. That was one of the first things uh-huh. that stood out. Well, that is something that DC Talk did in the '90s in their earlier album. They had a song called "We're Just" that went "We're Just Two Honks and a Negro," and oh. so I think there's something there about trying to, um, yeah, like <laughs> reclaim this language. But mm-hmm. I, I I don't know if you know this, Peter, but uh, the three people in DC talk, you know, two white guys and black man, they all met at Liberty University, you know, so they're coming from a place where race is obviously a huge part of the history and sort of the undescribed, but I was telling Crispin, like, the music itself, I kind of like, the words are a little bit mishmashy sometimes, and you could read a lot of different things into it, but just take a step back and say, is this, like, them trying to reclaim the word colored? Like, mm-hmm. what is happening? Like, is it desensitizing white listeners to that yeah. term and, and putting it to this music where where I didn't have a second thought singing along to this, you know, when I was 12 years old? Like, right. that's really weird is the nicest mm-hmm. way to say that. I yeah. want to use some harsher language here. Um, so, I, I agree. Like, I cannot get over the name of the song and like i think there's a reason no nobody's trying to reclaim 
with the word colored. Yeah. Um, yeah. Except DC talk in 1995. And why? Right. Why? I, I think it'd be really interesting to, to, um, to see if they received any pushback in the 90s. The, the song came out in 1995 or six. So mm-hmm. at that point, mm-hmm. were, were, was anyone asking questions? raising eyebrows and if not it might you know maybe it's speak it's a reflection of um the culture at large at least sort of white evangelical culture at large yes right yeah because they were i mean to to kind of place them like they got famous going on billy graham crusades and touring with michael w smith so that gives Uh, you like a picture of the space that they were in probably yeah. was not a space where they were going to get a lot of pushback. Right. Um, yeah. Using that term. And, and we can't go into it, but somebody, and I've already said this before, somebody could write a dissertation on how DC Talk engages with the work of Dr. King throughout their music, like throughout all their albums. It's very fascinating. So they do try and talk about some race stuff, but it's... It, mm. it never goes over well. I mean, it's always, you know, through the sort of like white evangelical lens and yet they were sort of applauded for being for actually talking about it which wow. i'm like oh no yeah well that's <laughs> the other we're thing talk about yeah and uh-huh. i guess we're going to get into the to the rest of the lyrics but that's the other sort of general sense um that i was struck by is there's no sense of history or connection to the history of black theology so i think it's mm-hmm. interesting that you mm-hmm. mentioned um Martin Luther King Jr., but also for several decades by the 90s, James Cone had been writing about Black theology, mm-hmm. Black mm-hmm. liberation theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, womanist theology was uh, was um, flourishing in this time. In fact, in the Faith and Justice mm-hmm. Network in the coming month, we're going to read a piece by Dolores Williams, um, a piece that she wrote in 1993, wrestling with what it means mm-hmm. to be a womanist and not a feminist. And so there were these amazing resources that would have been um, around in the '90s, but it seems like there's no there's no awareness of that really rich tradition um, to um, to draw on. Probably not a lot of exposure to that at Liberty University. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is the wild thing about white evangelical. Right, is because DC Talk could say, like, we're pushing the boundaries for liberty by being an interracial band, literally. Mm -hmm. That was it. And so they're seen as progressive. They're seen as, like, they actually talk about race a little bit. Um, And, but you're pointing out, like, there was so much richness to be mined. And, Mm -hmm. and that's something that, you know, people like myself, we, we weren't, raised with that knowledge we truly thought no this is it you know dr king i guess um but you know nobody else and so i think that's such a great point you already made is like the complete absence of other streams that don't match up Mm. with liberty university basically yeah Yeah. maybe i'm saying liberty too much because it's also like christian record producers and christian bookstores and christian publishing and christian marketing but they're all white and uh, you know connected to this well, that's the other other thing that strikes me about this time period is um, when you are immersed in such a white world, just the fact of having a relationship with someone, um, a cross-cultural relationship, right, would have uh, uh, been a, a significant thing. And so um, the bar was set really low. 
Yeah. Yeah. And if you're going to talk about race at this time, it seems like what you have to say is all of us are humans. And, you know, I, I'm curious about your take, Peter. Do you feel like this is a song about colorblindness or not? Because to me, it does sort of match up to, I don't really, like the color of your skin doesn't really mean much to me. Like it's beautiful, but like we're all humans underneath. Um, mm. And I think we've all seen the damage of that kind of long-term thinking because it causes especially white people like myself to therefore minimize the stories of people who say, I've actually, no, actually I've been oppressed and marginalized because of my skin color. Um, What's your sense of how this kind of fits into the colorblind craze? Yeah. There is a sense in which all the colors kind of blend together. And, uh, and maybe that's part of the reason for using the word colored is to say, Hey, like, let's acknowledge this, but at the same time, let's claim a higher truth. And the higher truth is that we stand above this because, mm. um, you know, because of our understanding of theology that says we're all made in the image of God. But, but I remember as an Asian American um, person in the '90s, uh, working through racial reconciliation theology, puzzling over mm. how it is that I was supposed to show up, right? Because this wasn't necessarily my history. And so, um, that was hard. And I think that there's something about uh, looking or looking past the, um, the, the very specific experiences, the very concrete experiences of oppression that Black people experienced, um, that when you, when you bypass that, uh, it makes it easier. It makes for more comfortable conversations. And it's, it's definitely a quicker route to talking about peace and harmony and, and, uh, and God's beloved community. But you haven't, we haven't really had the opportunity to do the hard work of ferreting out, um, the really harmful histories that are very yeah. much part of our path, of our present. Yeah, I think it'd be great to just jump into the chorus because I feel like we're we're talking about this. Um, mm-hmm. We're colored people and we live in a tainted place. We're yeah. colored people and they call us the human race. I think it's worth adding um, the reading the whole chorus. We've got a history so full of mistakes, and we are colored people who depend on a holy grace. And so, just looking at that. Um, there's a few things going on there. I wonder if you could just hearing that kind of where your mind goes. Yeah. Well, one, I mean, because here's a new thought that I'm getting just listening to this now again is, um, so when they say we're colored people, you're saying these are two white men and a, and a black man saying together we're colored people. And so, even there, if they're on the stage singing the song together, there's this sense of um, all of us are colored, and therefore, none of our distinctive particularities matter, right? Um, But in the 90s, and even today, like, we just know, looking at people... And, uh, and getting to know them that based on colorism is a very real thing in our world. People are judged yes. based on the color of their skin. Now, we don't have to like that, 
but we can't turn a blind eye to that. So that seems that seems odd to say we're all mm-hmm. colored, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. trying to level the playing field, which may be a, a good motivation, but there you're glossing over lots of details. And then this this notion of we live in a tainted place. Um, this sort of uh, theological glossing over uh, the reality of sin and brokenness, mm. um, which I think sometimes has the ironic effect of creating a hierarchy of, of brokenness or sin-taintedness. So there is a sense in, I think, white Christian theology, especially white evangelical theology, that we're all sinful, but there's different levels of sinfulness, right? So mm-hmm. we are at least mm-hmm. civilized sinful. And there are other cultures mm-hmm. which are um, uncivilized, right? They're, they're heathen sinful. They're barbaric sinful. They're even demonic sinful. sinful. And so these hierarchies exist and... Um, I think it's it's uh, it's really important to to acknowledge it or to recognize that. So yeah, this this tendency to to gloss over or to try to put everyone on lo- on a level level playing field without working through how it is that people have been on very different um, levels of these hierarchies, human created mm-hmm. hierarchies, is is deeply uh, problematic. It's in. Yeah, it's interesting that you said like human created. Yes. Because when it says we live in a tainted place, there's no actor in that. No. Right? It mm. is, it is, yeah. um, everything is messed up. Yeah. Everyone is messed up. Mm-hmm. You know, and it takes away the. I wonder about that idea. When, when you think about this idea. <laughs> wait, wait. What do you think about your research? Would you sum it up as, well, we live in a tainted place? No, that's not how you as a historian would sum up, right? right. Well, I mean, I mean, this is um, the problem with the passive voices. You remove, um, you remove human agency, right? There's no subject in that sentence. Who did the tainting? How did this come yes. about? Yeah. That's the central question of this song that is unspoken. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it just happened. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. and it, we all need to repent equally, Peter. Well, that, you know, yeah. for whatever's yeah. happened. You, were, you talked about um, sin, right? And, yeah. and whitewashing sin, which a lot of evangelicals are critical of. Like, we don't want to white- whitewash sin. You can't just call sin a mistake. Right. It is, mm-hmm. you know, something you do against God, it, you know, whatever it is. But it, so it struck, really stood out to me that they chose to use the word mistakes. We, we've got a mm-hmm. history full, full, so of, full mistakes. of mistakes. Mistakes And only God's made. grace can heal it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Mistakes were made, but we, but we don't know. Like we don't know who made it. We don't know how it came about. Uh, and we're just doing our best. All of us are doing our best uh, with a really bad situation that we inherited. <sighs> that is like my childhood religious indoctrination in a nutshell. If I can be perfectly honest, mm. like that was it. Yeah. And I think the long term violence of that kind of theology yeah is really devastating mm-hmm. to think yeah yeah because what you're really saying there is hey can you cut us some slack like we're doing our best it's not it's not our fault that we live in this world can you just yeah can you just give us a break um it turns then, into yeah. white people singing we're colored people yeah. yeah and we all need god's grace right 
you right. know, with mm-hmm. some of the mistakes that have been made. I'm like, this is so messed. It's so deeply messed up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so you were talking about you lived through the 90s. Uh, as an adult, we did not. We were children. Um, I was. But, a, I was a teen. Okay, <laughs> you're the baby of this conversation, Crispin. Yes, that's true. But yeah, I wondered, um, especially bringing your own racial identity into this experience of the '90s and racial reconciliation being an emphasis in some spaces. Um, I think that this really parallels this album came out in 95 and it was in 96 that promise keepers uh and i think announced that um racial reconciliation was one of their goals and so i think there's some parallels there to kind of understand what was going on in white evangelicalism at that time but yeah i'm really curious to to hear from you as we are looking at this idea of like well this just happened and everybody um you know, everyone needs God's grace. I wonder what that was like for you, if those were the messages you heard and what that was like for you to hear those messages. It was absolutely the message I heard. Um, and this vision of a multicultural uh, church, family of God, working through racial reconciliation, which happened, by the way, to gloss over um, centuries of racialized sin and trauma, right? But the thing that I remember about this is there was so much aspirational whiteness. Now, we wouldn't have had this language back then, but there was so much aspirational whiteness for people of color. For me as an Asian American, for for Black Christians, there was this sense, because, I mean, let's be honest, when people were talking about multicultural churches, they were basically talking about people of color coming into white-led churches and organizations and basically following and submitting to the leadership of white male leaders. And what you get in a situation like that is you have young people like me thinking, I want to be like that white male leader. And the way that I'm going to get there is by listening to all of their sermons, um, trying to act like them, be like them, model myself after them. And so there was a lot of cultural erasure and um, trying to be somebody that we were not. Um, and in, in a situation like that, the status quo really gets preserved, right? Or all of us participate to avoid the passive voice. All of us end up participating in the preservation of that status quo. And, and it's really harmful. It's, you know, looking back on it, it's really sad. Yeah, I... I, that's exactly what I felt like thinking about this, like, hey, we want racial reconciliation and we're going to do it. And here's what it looks like. And it doesn't it doesn't look like actual racial healing mm. at all. Yeah. 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 And I think the problem does stem from like the fundamental lack of engagement with what we're talking about, which is the history of Christianity and, you know, racialized trauma, right, in yeah. the United States and, mm-hmm. and how it's, it's truly the backbone, right, of our nation. I don't know if yeah. you feel like talking about that at all, Peter, but, mm-hmm. you know, for people like myself, I feel like being a part of the Faith and Justice Network and, and being under, your, like, the scholarship you are writing yourself and the ones that you uh, are telling people, like, hey, maybe read this. Mm-hmm. It's been such a wonderful course corrective to me growing up you know, yeah. firmly ensconced in white evangelicalism. So I wonder if you could just say a few things to people um, like 
how important is race when we are thinking about Christianity in America? Before you jump into that, these two lines, perhaps other than the title, the two most cringeworthy lines fit into this. The lines say, ignorance has wronged some races and yeah. vengeance is the Lord's. And I'm, I think as, as Danielle's asking this question of you as a historian, you know, yeah. an, uh, another one of these moments where you as a historian would never uh, be so vague as to say, well, yeah. some races were harmed. <laughs> like, we're mm-hmm. not going to say which ones, but yeah. some of them were. I yeah. wonder... Um, and vengeance is the Lord. So please yeah. don't ever try and, right. uh, yes. you know, demand justice yourself. Yes. If you're yeah. one of the marginalized and oppressed people groups, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, let's unpack that whole sentence because it says ignorance has wronged some races. Like, what's the subject there? The subject, the, the acting agent is ignorance. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, human, uh, it's not white uh, enslavers. It's not colonizers. It's, uh, it's ignorance. It's this very abstract um, subject. Uh, and so what happens is the people who are both perpetrators and beneficiaries of this kind of uh, supremacist thinking um, are off the hook, right? Because it's ignorance. They're also victims of ignorance, <laughs> yeah. if I'm getting that right. Yeah, right. Yeah. right? Ignorance yeah. is the actor that's hurting everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, yeah, I think there's, there's so much uh, bypassing of really important uh, matters of uh, of injustice here. So I, I mean, the thought that came to my mind as I was listening to both of you is um, how violent some of the um, experiences, many of the experiences of people of color um, have been, how traumatizing it's been. And so, um, again, just because we're going to be talking about Dolores Williams' piece she talks about how much, you know, in, in trying to be a black female academic, how much um, the language of academia, like, for instance, she talks about the word argument. And if you're a scholar or an aspiring scholar, you know that it's really important to have a crystal clear presentation of your argument or your thesis statement. And she just talks about how that's such a, a violence-laden term when she thinks of the word violent of of the word argument, she thinks of the people who were beaten up and killed in her, in her experience of growing up. And so to overcome that and to try to become a person who can present clear arguments is a hard thing. And you have to navigate mm-hmm. through the trauma mm-hmm. of your past and really mm-hmm. painful memories. And so that becomes really hard. Um, so how do you do that? How do you, how do you do that work together? How do we do that work together? And how do each of us show up for that work with each of our um, pasts and responsibilities? Uh, I think that's really hard, but the difficulty of this needs to be acknowledged. I remember um, for many years working alongside of a colleague, a white male colleague, who whenever we came and we taught together some of these courses, and, and whenever we came to these difficult topics of race, one of his knee-jerk responses was to talk about nonviolence and the importance yeah. of nonviolence. And yeah. theoretically, I get where he was coming from, but both in myself as a person of color, but amongst students who were people of color, there was always sort of this discomfort and pushback 
against that desire to center and to begin with nonviolence. And, uh, and I think that's a problem, right? Now, theoretically, if you ask me, well, Peter, do you have a problem with nonviolence? No, absolutely not. Uh, but what does it mean to have these hard conversations where violence is already present? The effects mm-hmm. of violence are already mm-hmm. present. And there are people in the room who are trying to, to, to survive and to reckon with, to do business with that history that is very much present, um, even with us today. And so, um, I think, uh, a willingness to, to face hard questions, uh, to do the work, to roll up our sleeves and to, and to face discomfort is, um, is so critically important. Yeah, I mean, it just, when you're talking about your colleague, it's like that line that says, vengeance is the Lord's, right? Like, real quick, like, don't don't get mad, don't get upset, like, you have to stay calm, you have to stay, you have to be able to present your argument in this, you know, logical, unemotional way in response to this violence and trauma Mm -hmm. that's been done to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Like, has DC Talk ever said something like "vengeance is the Lord" in response to anything else? It's like, no, it's mm-hmm. just this vague. Like, we have some histories full of mistakes, you know. And when it comes to race, that's where we just can't even begin to think of a way forward, except singing shitty songs like this one. Yeah. Sorry yeah. Yeah. to swear, uh, Peter. Do you think ignorance was the main perpetrator? Do you think ignorance is to blame for specifically, you know, the song, I think we're talking about violence against black people, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, do you think ignorance is wh- what we should blame? Were harmed. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a really good leading question and I'm happy to follow and say, no, it's not right. Ignorance <laughs> is not the reason. <laughs> it's, it's so not the reason. <laughs> Um, it was greed, and so there there are economic dimensions to this, but there's also pride, like spiritual pride, is a, mm-hmm. is such a huge component mm-hmm. of this. And so, um, the the extent to which you, uh, a white person shows up into a conversation like this and says, "Well, I am the beneficiary of a very rich theological tradition." That despite all of its faults and shortcomings and, you know, and all of us are sinful, fallen people, despite all of that, we've actually done a really good job constructing a system of theology that has answers for these kinds of questions. Not realizing or not um, not owning up to the fact that the very theologians that you are reading and quoting and teaching from were also slave owners and, and conquerors and mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, what happens when you when you gloss over all of those details? Um, what happens when you say, you know, I was also thinking about the '90s and thinking, um, I don't know if you guys remember this song. Stephen Curtis Chapman had a song called "Burn the Ships." Remember this song? I do. Yes, I have yeah. told Danielle. I'm like, I, we have to talk about this. I don't, I don't have any memory of this song, but Crispin is kind of obsessed with this, so he'll be tracking with you on yes. this. Okay? Oh my goodness! Yes. Yeah, and I think this song came out in the early '90s, um, but it was a song mm-hmm. celebrating the heroic feats of Cortez, Hernan Cortez, mm-hmm. who who basically wiped out the Aztec Empire. 
In the spring of 1519, the Spanish fleet set sail. Cortez told the sailors, this mission must not fail. On the eastern shore of Mexico, landed with great dreams. But one of the things that Cortez did was, like when he landed in America, and I think this was this would have been in Mexico, the Aztec Empire. He said, "We're going to burn the ships because any of you cowards who want to go back and not engage in this war are not going to have recourse, are not going to be able to go back." Right? And then and then Stephen Curtis Chapman comes along and and writes a book that said that writes not a book, a song that says, "Burn the ships. <laughs> There's no turning back." Um, like what yeah. happens when you when you celebrate that history and that theology? Oh my goodness, there's so much harm there. Yeah, because he's saying he's saying this is what it's like to be a Christian. <laughs> like, yeah, this is and an analogy yeah, yeah, yeah. of having faith and oh, being yeah. a Christian that lives in mm-hmm. in courage and lives in you know victory and to be a Jesus Ooh, freak. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> exactly. To be a Jesus freak. I mean. The, Peter, we're not even getting into like the accompanying books and stuff that went with this album, but they're all revolve around stories of martyrs. And they actually utilize stories of Christians from other ethnic and cultural backgrounds to sort of uphold this idea of what being a Jesus freak is like in the United States. And it's really, really sad to think about now, um, just the layers of continuing to like exploit even Christians of color and their stories, and then to kind of subsume it under this, what you, you just, you said it so perfectly. This, this, I just grew up with so much pride baked into my theological background. And I feel like I'm going to spend the rest of my life untangling that. Um, And just this idea that it can be reclaimed, it can, you know, be used for good. And I think both Chris and I, you know, for a long time now, I've been like, uh oh, I, I do not think that is correct <laughs> anymore, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which then puts you at odds with with the entire system and machine, as you know. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. Which is why I've become obsessed with historians. Um, it's just a fascinating counterculture to um, white evangelical theologians. If yeah. I'm being perfectly honest, is is to mm-hmm. read historians, and and I know you're a historian. You love historians. Do you think that's like a good like if you're giving people advice who are listening to this? And are like, oh my God, what do I do next? Like, mm-hmm. would you tell them to read historian? I'm sorry, I'm asking all these leading yeah. questions, no, but I, I mean, they're also just questions I truly want to know. <laughs> one of the best things, one of the best decisions I made in my life, without even realizing it, was to go back and study history and not theology. Now, I'll be honest and say, when I was applying to grad schools, I knew so little that I wasn't able, even able to discern the fact that I was applying to some programs that were in uh, religious studies departments of divinity schools, which were very different from um, theology departments of seminaries, which were also very mm. different from history departments of universities. Now, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I had no idea. I had no discernment whatsoever. Uh, but one of the things I realized in the course of studying history, and I had a really good uh, advisor who... Um, he would be horrified to hear me characterize it this way, but he kind of basically in a really nice way beat the theologian out of me. 
because、oh. he saw, <laughs> he saw, he, you know, like so many times I would make these moves, make these assertions, and he would say, Peter, you have to, you have to show evidence, right, for your arguments,、mm. and、um, and data, and the events that you're drawing on are really important, and the words, and that, this is why it's important to go to the archives, and to the archives themselves、yes. are problematic because they enshrine the words of white men mostly, and so. Uh, they're also tools of empire, but you have to go and you have to look look at the sources and listen to the voices of people on the ground.、Um, and there's something about about that turn that helped me to to think beyond. Because with theologians and my, my theologian friends get really upset when they hear me say this,、uh, but I think and there are really good theologians that do a much better job at the craft of theology. But so much of theology is basically saying, "What、well, this is what I believe about God, right?" Yes. This is, and and my evidence is other people who have written about what they believe about God. And there's some, you know, there's some reasoning and argumentation, and they're stringing together different ideas. Again, my theologian friends are going to be really angry with me for how I'm characterizing their craft and their scholarship. But they're stringing together ideas. But it's basically your your um. You're referring to the authority of other people who had the audacity to think great thoughts about God, and you're not beholden、mm-hmm. to evidence, right? You're not beholden to facts on the ground and the way that things actually played out and happened. And so,、um, I think that dealing with history now, there's problematic、um, elements there too. It's not like all historians are going to look at events of the past. And have the exact same interpretation of those events, but at least there you're talking about concrete things to some degree,、um, and you're trying to work out interpretations and arguments based on evidence. Yeah, we have one last piece. Oh, I love that. that. Oh,、yeah. which is、um, the you know there's the,、uh, DC Talk solution, which is. We we've got to come together, aren't we all human after all? And so, <laughs> I wondered. <laughs> for, I'm laughing because like, you just made you a giggling? face. Why are you giggling? Oh, okay. Because、okay. <laughs> Peter's face just like wincing. At we、this. just got to come together.、Uh, in you know 1995 when this came out. Uh, you you talked a little bit about this, but what did that mean to the white evangelicals that were,、uh, oh. you know, blasting this in their stereos? Well, people just take so much pride in their interracial relationships. The fact that I, you know, as a white as you know a white person saying, the fact that I have a black friend or an Asian、mm-hmm. friend, or me as an Asian American person aspiring towards whiteness, saying, oh, I have friends who are black. Right, I have friends who are Indian, who are of different cultural backgrounds, and I'm doing the hard work. I'm rolling up my sleeves and trying to、um, to listen and open up my heart and and be changed in the in the course of these relationships.、Um, and then I think again, with the benefit of hindsight, realizing we were all you know playing a game that did not、um, even come close to looking at. Um, identifying and addressing、um, the deep-rooted problems、uh, that ailed us, and so yeah, I, the coming together idea. I mean, this is why it's hard because, like, who who could argue against coming together, right? I, that's、mm-hmm. a that's a really good thing, and so 
why are you going to be the curmudgeon um, telling people that they shouldn't want to come together? They're at least saying the right mm-hmm. things, and so how could we not praise them? And so I think this is the difficulty of um, rhetorical, uh, virtuous rhetorical presentations of these kinds of convictions that ring hollow, frankly. Mm. And so, and the reason this is hard is everyone wants a solution. People are going to ask me, well, well, Peter, what's your solution then, right? And I think we have Mm -hmm. to get comfortable with not having solutions. Um, Mm. maybe, Maybe the best place to start is by not pontificating what we think ought to be the solution, ought to be the answer. Um, and instead say, you know what, there's a lot of people in the world, and how about we start listening to some other voices? Now, that sounds like a very, you know, uh, unsatisfying cop-out of an answer. But really, if you think about it, that's a really hard thing to do, right? To mm-hmm. take time to listen, to read, um, to, to sit with uncomfortable ideas, to sit in mystery, is really hard. I want answers. I want to have, you know, a three-point plan for how I get to, you know, the next thing. Um, but if our, um, if our predicament is so, um, is so catastrophic and so deeply embedded within our, the very fabric of our souls, then um, to say, you know what, we may not have the solution for a while is not the worst thing. I love that, Peter. I feel like... I mean, white evangelicals especially just cannot be out here saying we know how to do anything when it comes to race or have any solutions. And I do think, um, you know, for me personally, like learning history is is kind of like where I need to stay for a while. You've already mentioned a few people in our short chat. Um, I I feel like you are the one who introduced me to Willie James Jennings and the Christian imagination, which is like a really, uh, it's a really hard book to read just uh, because he's such a brilliant mind and it's, it's really deep stuff. But that was exactly the kind of book where it kind of lulled me in with this very Christian name, you know, the Christian imagination. (laughs) And then when you read it, you're like, this is about how diseased white Christian imagination truly is at its core. Mm -hmm. And, and it was like, a very important experience for me. I wondered if you had a few other names you might want to throw out here just for people if they're like, I would like to start reading and I would like to start mm-hmm. um, taking ownership of my ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. And and saying, mm-hmm. what can I what can I do here? Yeah. Um, let's see. The ones that come to mind are the ones that are um, near me on my desk. So this book I have here, Cole Arthur Riley's This Year Flesh, where she does some mm-hmm. amazingly beautiful... Um, historical work i want to say like she's she's actually a really historically minded writer she's doing basically her uh family history but she also has a wonderful chapter on memory and the importance of um remembering um i think that we just need to do more learning from uh, black christianity and black theology because there is such and here i'm just martin luther king jr is great but there's so much more right I mean, do we realize, uh, for many of us, James Cone will be a leap um, and Black liberation theology. But do we realize, and so James Cone is kind of famous or infamous for saying God is Black, 
uh, in the mid um, 20th century, late uh, mid to late 20th century. But do we realize, and we and we learned this from um, our readings last month in the Faith and Justice Network, there was a man, uh, an African American bishop, Henry McNeil Turner who in 1895 already addressing the National Baptist Convention had the audacity to declare God as a Negro. Okay, Now, that term is outdated and we wouldn't use that term now. But back then, you know, that wasn't the most offensive part. Maybe that was, but for different reasons, right? Really a really powerful and offensive thing to say. And so, do we realize um, that there's a rich history of resistance, of liberationist Mm -hmm. thinking, of mm-hmm. theologians, historians, pastors, regular people trying to reclaim the dignity of all persons. Um, so I mentioned also Dolores Williams, who is a woman a scholar. I think there's just amazing resources out there. Shoki Ko, who's a theologian working in the context of Asia in the in the in the uh, late 20th century. Um, so many amazing thinkers that would be considered. Um, out of bounds for many white evangelicals, but so much yeah. to learn by submitting to their wisdom. And one more shout out to the Faith and Justice Network, where literally you can just be with a community of people reading these things. And mm-hmm. uh, me and Chris were both involved, and we just love it so much. Yeah, yeah, Peter and the team putting together these readings that were like, yeah, I didn't know this existed. Um, and so it's just been such a gift to have you lay out this curriculum and then be able to engage together as a community as we read. Yeah. I can't believe, Peter, we asked you to come on and talk about the hardest song to talk about on the album. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize this. I didn't realize this was a hard song to talk about. Good, so. It's funny because there's obviously like really intense things to talk about with this yeah. album and we haven't really even gotten to the depths of like the martyr mm-hmm. issue um that again yeah. is, is really intense but this mm-hmm. one just talking about white evangelicals and their approach to race is is really fraught and really difficult and um mm-hmm. yeah. the way we were raised is just like yeah let's just keep singing about it i'm sure it'll get better yeah. somehow yeah. god's grace well, and i'm like oh wow that's not it yeah and i realize we're winding down here but maybe this is maybe this is a good a, a good concluding note that when we talk about martyr theology, oftentimes it's the rank and file members who are called to be martyrs. And then usually at the people at the top, the, the leaders get to benefit from that martyr theology. And I think it's so important for us to be clear-eyed about what happens in these systems is there are just a few beneficiaries and so many people for whom it is a very costly exercise and so um, I think the work that you know, you're doing, that we're doing in the Faith and Justice Network, that people who are trying to deconstruct this really harmful and toxic theology, uh, it's really important work. And I dare say uh, it's life-saving work. And so um, I really appreciate um, the ways that you have accompanied, accompanied me in this journey. Um, and I'm really grateful to have friends like you challenging me and um inviting me to think about songs like this from our past that <laughs> show us, right, how bad things were and still are. Oh, well, Peter, I'm going to have to have you on to talk more about the martyr stuff. That's clear to me now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, we're going we're gonna to tuck that away and bring it out later. <laughs> Definitely.
definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, we really appreciate um, connecting with you and, and like just being able to bring your experience and study to this. I told you to not do research before this because I know that if I asked you these questions, you would be like, all right, like, let me go to the, go to the textbooks, which I think just really speaks to your diligence and um, really respect for wanting to uh, speak of things clearly um, as possible so that we have an, a vision of where we came from and a vision for yeah. where we might go in the future. So thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you both. I really enjoyed the conversation. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1.50 a month and join our community with extra episodes and a Facebook group to talk about Jesus Freak, religious trauma, and growing up evangelical. You can find us online at propheticimaginationstation.com as well as Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening.